Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 15, Bad Girls Go to Jail. I was in the little office nook, which I had created in our home, of minimalistic domesticity on the day that Ronnie came home from jail. I was just about to hit my vein when he stealthily appeared in the doorframe. Out of surprising guilt, I hid the medicine bottle behind my back. I was very happy to see Ronnie, but I did not want to share my drugs with him because that is how bad I had become. He gave me a huge hug and looked at me with those adoring eyes and said, Don't worry, I have $20. His kindness burned a hole in me, and I wondered how he could love me, a selfish fucking asshole. I recounted to Ronnie the story of his disappearance while being held at the Pulaski County Jailhouse, and when I repeated the assessment of the public defender that he and I appeared to be intelligent, neither one of us could look each other in the eye. It was not a calculated choice to put the mirror next to the bed. It just ended up there. And when Ronnie and I would make love, it became a framed piece of art. I found nothing more beautiful than the sight of his round black ass sitting on top of my skinny white torso. The beauty of our colors mixing and contrasting with each other would distract me. What could be more exquisite than the coupling of the races? My mind would wander off, and I decided that the cure for all the world's bigotry was a new race of people, a blended race. So I decided that I would do my part and have three children with Ronnie. We were just laying around one day, not making babies, when we heard a cavalcade of loud and determined footsteps racing up the stairs to our apartment. There was something about the cacophonous noise that set my hairs on end. Junkies always know when the cops are coming because the sick in the belly comes first. It wasn't just one or two cops. It was several different branches, city, state, and the sheriff's department. Confusion ensued, and it took a while before I could figure out who they were after, me or Ronnie. The law always makes you nervous, and you do silly things when confronted. I tried to pretend that I wasn't Chris Kerr, and I went around in circles with them until they told me they had arrested Lil. 
When they searched her car, they found the blue money bag from our first B&E, the pizza place. At that point, I saw the writing on the wall, and I let them handcuff me. The cops put me in a tiny room with a window where I could look outside and see my freedom taunting me. It only takes seconds before you can feel the difference. Two handsome detectives came into the room to question me. One had blonde hair and one had dark. They were both clean cut and they looked like they lived peaceful, perfect lives. I wanted to be in their world, not in mine, because I imagined it was so much easier. They asked me all the predictable questions. How long have you known Lil? How long have you been a drug addict? Do you want to get help? We can help you if you help us. They started naming all the places that Lil and I had broken into, and I broke out into a cold sweat. It smelled distinctively of fear and guilt, and the smell alone was enough to condemn me. I started crying and couldn't stop. How'd they know all this? Did Lil tell them? But I didn't say a word. I just cried and cried and cried. When they mentioned the hippie shop, I tried to conceal the alarm that was sounding in my head. I had given Ronnie the leather jacket that we stole from that place, and he wore it all the time. It looked really good on him, and I was scared shitless. Were the other officers searching our apartment? And if so, would they find the jacket? I didn't want Ronnie to go to jail for something that I had done. And as far as I knew, it was the only real evidence that tied me to the crimes. I wasn't as stupid as Lil to drive around town with a stolen money bag in my car. But they had to let me go because there was no evidence against me, only Lil's word. In one last ploy to get at the broken little girl they knew I was, they warned me with the sternness of a parental figure that they knew everything, and it was only a matter of time. When I got back to the apartment, the whole vibe of my life had changed, and I could swear that Ronnie looked at me differently. We reflected each other's shame and guilt, and that taints any good love. The lawyer was right. Ronnie and I were intelligent, and we knew exactly what we were doing. We were consciously becoming something that neither one of us should have been. The cliched, drug-addicted loser. Daddy issues or not? Our phone service was, coincidentally, turned on just in time to receive an out-of-the-blue call from my sister Kathy, whom I had not seen or spoken to in years. She wasn't living on the farm in Tennessee anymore. She had moved back to Cleveland to be with her real family, as she put it. She was calling to tell me that our father was in the hospital, dying of colon cancer. He was just 42 years old. She gave me the number to his hospital room, 
and suggested that I might want to talk with him. It was a beautiful, warm, and sunny day with clear blue skies and no humidity, unusual for the South. I dialed the number to his hospital room slowly with hesitation, but also with a strange tingle of joy. It was nice to remember that I had a real father, but weirder still to know that he was dying. What does one say to a dying stranger? Hi, Dad. It's me, Tina. Very long pause. And then, with the raspy, cigarette-stained voice of a man consumed by hatred and conservative values, my father used his last dying breath to call me several derogatory names for a homosexual. He told me that I was not his daughter because no daughter of his was queer, and then he disowned me. I couldn't believe it. Disown me? Why bother? You're dying. What a waste of your last minutes on earth. I couldn't say anything because I was so stunned. I tried to smile it off, not that anyone was there to notice, but I felt embarrassed. My hand was shaking, and then I just hung up. If I had been brave, I would have stood up for myself. But the anger in my mind let him have it. You have never been a father to me, and now you want to condemn me. A lot you know about anything. I'm not even a real gay, only sometimes when I feel like it. I have a black boyfriend now anyway, and you don't know a damn thing about me, asshole. So go ahead and die. And he did, in September of 1985, and I didn't care at all. Revisited I didn't mean to set another apartment on fire, but I did. I was just nodding off when a cigarette fell from my hand and rested on the bed. There weren't any flames, just a thick billowing of smoke, which made it impossible to see or to breathe. The firemen came with long, twisted hoses and sharpened axes and tore the place apart. They completely annihilated our minimalistic love nest, and we had no choice but to move. We rented a room at the Ritz Motel where you could pay by the hour or the day. We paid by the day and discreetly moved in with my three cats. A family from India managed the Ritz, and the rooms had an unfamiliar, pungent, and foreign smell. The first night was fun. I felt like I was on vacation. But soon, the degradation set in, with the five of us living in tight quarters, while every act of lascivious behavior was going on around us. It was there that I first noticed the physical wear and tear of shooting up and how ghoulishly it wore itself on my body. My face was permanently marked with breakouts and blotches, and my eyes were shadowed with the dark rings of endless nights. 
My arms had long, blistering track marks, bruised and abscessed, and bulging veins had all but disappeared. Other than the juggler, there was only one vein left to use, a thick one that ran across my knee. It was very difficult to jab a dull needle into the thick skin of a kneecap, but there it was, the will and the perseverance of a drug addict. My sense of pride and innate restlessness were beginning to get the upper hand because being a drug addict is not only unsightly, it is boring. There are no new adventures and no new scenery. It's just the same old tired shit, day in and day out. And so I began to try everything I could to get off drugs. I went to NA meetings, but that didn't work. I couldn't get on board with the higher power stuff. I also had an aversion to the mindset that I was powerless over my addiction. For some crazy reason, I believed quite the opposite. I couldn't relate to the word powerless, and I wasn't about to use it. I also didn't want to sit around with a group of strangers hearing my story come out of their mouths. What I really needed was to get as far away from these people as I could. I needed a new story coming out of the mouths of new people. I checked myself into a state-run rehab clinic and I loved it. Now that was a vacation. There were absolutely no worries whatsoever. It was a clean and quiet environment, very structured and everything I needed in my life. Unfortunately, the state would only pay for a week's visit and that was definitely not enough time to break a nasty habit. The minute I got out of there, I had a serious yet quick debate with myself. I could have a new beginning in life, which I did desperately want, or I could have one of the greatest highs of my life due to a week's worth of clean time. My mouth watered, my heart raced, and I got so excited that I could feel the hit racing through my body. Just the thought of it propelled me forward, and with the giddiest of light-hearted footsteps, I ran all the way to the projects, which were several miles away. Debate, Debate over. over. Nineteen eighty-six, homeless for the new year. Once the Ritz realized that I had three cats, they kicked us out. Ronnie went to stay with his family, but I wasn't invited. They wanted to shelter and nurse him back to reality, and more than anything, they wanted me out of his life. Every time I called, they would hang up on me, and I had no idea whether or not Ronnie was standing up for me. I suspected not. He had become distant ever since my last arrest, and I could feel the rejection creeping up behind me. But he never said a word. It's no wonder, really, how far his family would go to overprotect, considering what they had just gone through with Ronnie's older brother and my old friend, Charles. 
Charles called us the night that it happened. I answered the phone and could tell instantly that something was amiss. Charles spoke in an eerily offhanded manner, but didn't seem to want anything in particular. I remember asking him if he was okay because his tone was so peculiar. He sounded like he had food in his mouth, which in most cases wouldn't be alarming, and yet, on this night, it was. In hindsight, after piecing the story together, we believed Charles had called after his wife had stabbed him in the heart with a kitchen knife. Maybe he was calling for help, but he never asked for it, and even in his last dying breath, Charles remained the unassuming good guy. With all my bridges burned, my only option was to move into my car with my three cats. At the time, I was working the late shift at the Subway sandwich shop, and I worked alone. My second job started at nine in the morning, so instead of sleeping, I practiced meditation. I had once read that meditating gives you focus, energy, and stamina, and my new lifestyle required all those qualities. I found it very peaceful to sit at one of the orange subway tables and focus on a round spot of light in my forehead. It really did work because I could go for days without a good night's rest and still feel calm and energetic. But my kitties weren't living a good life and I wanted better for them. So I drove them to the rich neighborhood and let them go. It was winter and it was cold and they looked scared and confused when I put them out onto the grass. I had to shoo them away, which made me feel even worse, all the while trying to convince myself that I was doing the right thing. But it felt like another blade of bad motherly love stabbing me in the heart just like it had with Lindsay. A scrawny little man walked into the subway one night looking bug-eyed and jittery. I could tell that something wasn't right because my heart started pounding and my stomach started rumbling. With each syllable encapsulated in a bubble of fear, I stuttered out the words, Can I help you? He didn't say anything. He just walked behind the counter, put a gun to my head, and told me to give him all the money. I froze and became just as bug-eyed as him. Unfortunately, my fingers turned into overcooked spaghetti noodles as I tried unsuccessfully to get the register open. The more buttons I pushed, the more confused we both got. As I fumbled around banging on that stupid machine, the man with the gun became more and more impatient. His demeanor had become scary, on the verge of insane, because he thought I was fucking with him. I wasn't. I didn't care about Subway's money. I just wanted to get out alive. The whole time he had a gun to my head, I tried to send him a psychic message that I was just like him. I knew he was a junkie 
and I was surprised that we didn't recognize each other. In my opinion, we were all from the same tribe, and he should go easy on me. I was hoping and praying that he would notice my track marks. I was never so relieved to hear the ping of the register drawer open, but when the robber saw what little money it held, he became even more infuriated. He pressed the gun to the small of my back and started pushing me towards the rear of the store, all the while screaming, Where's the money bag? Where's the money bag? The money bag was on a shelf under some clean white towels, and I contemplated whether or not to give it to him. Being the junkie that I was, even in this unpredictable and possibly life-threatening moment, half of my brain was trying to figure out how I could make a few dollars, even if it was just enough to buy a set. Somehow, he ended up with the money bag, and I ended up in the walk-in, with him telling me to count to a hundred. So maybe he did, after all, know that we were brethren. The adrenaline of fear made the chill of the walk unbearable, but it was my restless curiosity that made me slowly open the door and tiptoe out into a brand new reality. The store was quiet, but different. This out-of-the-ordinary evening left an intrusive pale over the shop, and now my quiet place of comfort was destroyed. Unfortunately, the same two guys who had interrogated me at the police department were the detectives who showed up to investigate the robbery. They were immediately suspicious and convinced that I had orchestrated the whole thing. I couldn't believe it. I had nothing to do with it, and yet all eyes were on me. If ever I needed consoling from an authority figure, it was now. Someone had just stuck a gun to my head and I could have been killed. But I knew I looked guilty because I felt guilty, and so I got arrested. Not for the robbery at Subway, but for a warrant over something stupid, like parking, like parking tickets, tickets, a missed a court, missed date, court or date, or credit card, credit fraud. card fraud. Who knows? It was just a bad night all the way around. I called Ronnie at his family's house, but the minute they heard my voice, they hung up. I only had one call, so I pretended that I had gotten the wrong number. The lady at the desk gave me a smirk and then looked back down at her paperwork. As always with the police, I tried to act all white and innocent, but it wasn't working as well as it used to. It was 3 a.m. in the morning when Glenn King came to bail me out of jail. This was the fourth time he had done so, and I suspected his last. Subway didn't fire me outright, they just took me off the schedule. The manager made a disingenuous comment about the company's concerns regarding the state of my mental health. Surely I needed some time to process the whole nasty ordeal, and that is what they were going to give me, indefinitely. But I needed no such thing. I was a piss-poor drug addict who needed money, and I had no time for belly aching. 
So I went to JoJo's restaurant where I met Joe, the father of my daughter, and I got a job there. They gave me a menu to learn, a polyester dress, and a full schedule of shifts.